Good morning. Oh, you guys are so cool. Thank you, students with the signs again. Oh, Ben, that's so nice. I don't deserve them. And they didn't even bring up the don't mess up sign today. <laughs> so kind of you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see you here this morning. Um, I haven't gotten to speak for like a month uh, or so, like a month and a week or something like that. A couple things have changed. First of all, uh, every time I've come out, either at the 9 or the 11, I have broken the music stand in some way, shape, or form. And now there's this big, rugged music stand that could seriously bludgeon a person. And there's no way that I could ever break it. And second, I, there's like this little private stage. It almost doesn't feel right. I'm not deserving of it. Um, thank you guys for joining me this morning. Um, there is a lot that we're going to cover, and we're going to go into the Old Testament quite a bit, which is super, super exciting, because we don't ever get to do that. So when I was writing this, I was really like nerding out, but we'll get to that as we go. Um, we're talking about identity, which we've been discussing, uh, you know, last week, and we'll continue to discuss after this week. Uh, and there are pillars of our identity found throughout Scripture. Mike spoke about this last week. Uh, he reminded us that if you're in Christ, then you are a saint. If you're in Christ, then you're a saint. He reminded us that Paul, when he writes to the church, he refers to them as saints. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we move from sinner to saint. Being a saint is a pillar of your identity. Uh, the students and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago at RISE. Uh, where we talked about how the things that have happened to you in your life, they change you, they shape you, and they identify you. The positives, they shape who you are. The negatives that you experience, they begin to shape who you are. Uh, and as you grow, they make you into the type of person that you'll be as an adult. But for the believer... We are not only shaped by our experiences, we are shaped by him. Our identities are shaped by Jesus and by what he's done for us. Because you're not defined by your mistakes, thanks to Jesus. You are defined by his success. Um, so when we talk about pillars of our identity, there is a very clear one in scripture that is often ignored because we all learned it when we became Christians and then it just kind of gets shuffled aside. Um, it's in the book of John, if you guys want to go there. Uh, there's such a commonplace discussion around what we're going to discuss today that a lot of people almost forget its origin. Uh, so we'll be discussing that this week. I like to, Personally, I like to call it the born identity, okay? Um, if you lose the U and the E, it makes a little more sense. And none of us look like Matt Damon, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, I was asked the question recently, what does born again mean? What does it mean to be born again? What is a born again Christian? Or is being born again even in scripture? Even better, what if I've been Christian my entire life? Do I have to be born again? 
So I want to dig right into that. There are some questions I'd like to answer this morning. To answer them, we're going to spend uh, most of our time in John chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles or go there uh, on your app, on your phone, whatever you prefer. Now let me start by saying this. We're going to talk a lot today about a guy named Nicodemus. Okay, Everyone's heard of Nicodemus. We're pretty familiar with him. But there are some references to Nicodemus that a lot of you may have missed. And I'm really excited to get into that. Um, Now, when we introduce Nicodemus, the most obvious way to do that and to give you context of where we're going with this discussion is just to say that God specializes in finding and changing people that you consider gone or people that you consider lost or people that you consider out of reach. You'll see here that Jesus is patient with this man, Nicodemus. um, And Nicodemus is embarrassed to be seen with him. Okay? So we'll dig right in with John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So Nicodemus is approaching Jesus at night because he's probably afraid of being discovered, afraid of being seen with him, afraid the other Pharisees seeing him speaking to Jesus might make him look kind of bad. So if you don't want to be seen, the nighttime is the right time, right? It's not like there was street street lights or anything like that. No one would have known who he was at that point. So he approaches Jesus when no one is going to see him. He's embarrassed to talk to Jesus. Generally, when a Pharisee spoke to Jesus, it was in the daytime. And it was a fairly antagonistic conversation. Um, But that wasn't Nick's plan. I'm sorry, I'm going to refer to him as Nick. Nothing against Nick Smith. Uh, It's just a lot easier. But that wasn't Nick's plan. Uh, He starts off just complimenting him. God is with you. Your signs are miraculous, yada, yada, yada. Um, And then Jesus answered him, and Nick got more than he bargained for. Because Jesus' answer, it was a challenge to a new life. And Nick probably was not expecting that. Verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the first time the term born again shows up in scripture. So when Nicodemus reacts confused, naturally, we would all do the same thing. First time you ever heard born again, you're probably thinking to yourself, how is that even possible? How do I go back into a womb and then come back out again. Nurses in the room? Anybody? No. Nobody knows. So he was confused. Some of us are confused by that. If you don't know the context, what would born again even mean? So Jesus continues in verse 5 and says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Just as it prompted some questions for Nicodemus, these verses probably generate some questions from us as well. You must be born again. 
And while I'm sure there are plenty of questions to consider, there's three that I want to spend my time focusing on. First, do I have to be born again? Second, how is a person born again? And last, am I born again? Am I already there? Now, the first one is a definite. It is an absolute. You either are or you aren't. Do I have to be born again? It's simple. If you need a new birth, that means there was something inherently wrong with your first birth. According to the Bible, we are born into sin. We are born into the collective sin of the human race. We were intended to live in a way where our focus is shifted outwards to focus on and to love others, especially those who are in need of it. And yet, because of sin, our hearts shift our focus inward so that we focus on ourselves. And we are warned about this throughout scripture and specifically our hearts and how our hearts do this. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. Pause. The most deceitful thing of all things that has ever existed, the most deceitful thing ever, is the human heart. The most deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked on top of that. Who really knows how bad it is? Our hearts prompt us to love the wrong things and to love the wrong things way out of proportion. Maybe that's why we love, desire, and seek God's gifts before we love, desire, and seek God himself. Our hearts seek to serve ourselves before they seek to serve him or others. The first part of verse 6 kind of hints at that, but I like the way that the NIV words it. It says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh. What does that mean? Another way to look at that is you cannot save yourself. You cannot change your corrupted flesh through the best efforts of your own corrupted flesh. There's nothing that you can do. Sin has ruined you and the enemy has a direct line to your heart, which we know is deceitful, to influence your every move and every decision. That's the spiritual warfare that we all live with, whether we're aware of it or not. The story of your life is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. So your flesh is never going to be able to save your flesh. Your heart is too corrupted to save your heart. That's why we need something outside of ourselves. Verse 5 says, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. So what does it mean to be born of water and spirit? There are some people who say water is birth and then spirit is second birth. There are some people that will say that this is baptism, that you have to be baptized by water in the spirit. But this is actually what it means. I'm going to be a Bible nerd here. There's one article in Greek that identifies both water and spirit. So he's not talking about two separate things. He's not talking about water 
and then talking about spirit. In Greek, it's saying you're born of water and spirit, all one thing, all together. You're born of water and spirit. He's talking about one instance, and that instance of water and spirit is the gospel. He is alluding to a prophecy that was made in Ezekiel about what the gospel would do to us. It's in Ezekiel 36, and the prophecy was made 600 years before Jesus was born. This is going to get awesome. I'm super excited. This will be fun. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27 say, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So all of this talk about the heart, Jesus gives us a new heart. Once we've been born again, once we have that born identity, we'll have a desire to obey his commands, not because we have to, but because we want to. We'll obey because we want to obey God. And right after this one is one of the coolest moments in the Bible. And I'm so excited I get to talk about this. God gives Ezekiel a vision that is so epic. When you really break it down, it should be like the cover of a metal album. Or it should be like something from a horror movie or something like that. It's so descript and so beautiful and horrific at the same time. I'm like shaking because I'm so stoked just to discuss this with you guys. So he gives him this vision, okay? He's transported to a valley of dry bones. And God directed him to speak to the bones. Ezekiel was to tell the bones that God's spirit would enter the bones and they would come to life just like in the creation of man when God breathed life into Adam. So Ezekiel obeyed, and in his vision, the bones start coming together, and they form the human shape. Flesh developed over the bones. This is so epic. Skin covered the flesh. Breath entered the bodies, and they stood up in a vast army. And God tells Ezekiel, by the way, that's what I'm going to do with the church. What you just saw, that's what I'm going to do with the church. I'm going to raise up an army that was dead, but is now born again. They will live under this new born identity. And that's what we need after all. Am I right? We, need, we don't need more rules or more religion or more structure. We need the breath and the spirit of God to give us new hearts and to make us alive. And that's what God is interested in. He's interested in our hearts. He doesn't want robots who follow his every rule. He doesn't want servants who serve him like it was a nine to five and then they get to clock out. Because, and I should have made this a slide and I did not, but I can't stress it enough. Because works don't cut it. Works do not cut it. J.D. Greer, he's this pastor, he has a, uh, a really good quote about this that I think is really applicable here. He says, God isn't just interested in your obedience. 
He's interested in why you obey. Our dilemma, our dilemma is not that we don't obey right. Our dilemma is that we don't love right. We never did. Our fleshy efforts will not change how we love people. If we want to change how we love, we need Jesus to heal our hearts. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Pay attention to the way that Jesus heals. Every example in scripture about Jesus healing. The blind, they suddenly see like hawks. The deaf, they can hear pins drop. The paralyzed, they hop out of bed and they can walk again. Jesus is speaking to us through scripture, through all of the works that he's done before, telling us that he can heal us. He can heal our hearts. That's why we need to be born again. That is why. So that brings us to number two. How is a person born again? Verse 14 says, As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now some of you might read that and think like, bronze snake on a pole, what? I don't even, I'm not familiar with that story. That's okay because I am a Bible nerd and I love being able to explain this stuff to you guys. So we just covered the bone army, right? The army of darkness, you could call it that. The reverse Benjamin Button army, whatever you want to discuss it, like however you want to phrase it. Um, Here's another really cool Old Testament throwback. Um, In the book of Numbers, the Israelites are in rebellion against God and God sent a plague to them a plague of deadly serpents called fiery serpents. And they were called fiery serpents because their bite felt like fire. And the venom felt like fire under the skin. And it would give you a fever that felt like... Very good. We're awake this morning. And all of those things would ultimately lead to death. That was the predominant result of the bite. The people cried out for mercy. So God instructed Moses to make a brass serpent, put it on a pole, place that pole on top of a hill. And those who sought out that brass serpent on a pole on top of a hill would be healed. It was as simple as that. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like any other moment in scripture that you might know? I'll come back to that. So why not just make a medicine, right? Why not just make some kind of antidote? Why not require them to work for a cure? It would have given them something to do and it would have satisfied every natural instinct of the human heart, which we've established is very flawed, um, to work on behalf of its own cure. The fact that they were told or they were not told to make a cure alludes to the fact that there is No human cure for sin. There is nothing that a human can do on their own when it comes to sin. There's nothing that they could have done to fix themselves. Nothing but death awaited them unless God provided the cure himself. That incident in Israel's history alludes to something else. Think about all of the similarities. You rebelled against God. And now you burn because of your rebellion. And you want to be healed 
So you seek him out on a structure on top of a hill. Do you love the parallel? The serpent was the result of the Israelites' sin. Jesus on the cross, that's the result of ours. Salvation, spiritual healing, rebirth comes from simply seeking him out and looking at him. And in that look, believing that hope comes only from trusting in him. Which brings us to a verse that we've all heard and we've all used and we've all heard Tim Tebow use it a million times when he was popular. And it's probably the most used verse in all of scripture. It is easily the most popular 316 that we know of. Um, not to be confused with its less popular successor, Austin 316, which really is not a message filled with hope at all. Um, John 316 gives a message that Christians throughout history have connected with. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is the most popular and probably the most focused on verse in all of scripture. God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present creator of everything in existence loves this world. A lot of Christians know this verse and then as they mature in their faith, they tend to forget it a little bit. They tend to forget that part about how God loves this world because they've become so accustomed to how evil they think this world is. But what the world has become in our lifetime is of very little relevance to God. God exists outside of time. He so loves this world. Everything and everyone that ever was, is, and ever will be he loves you and me right now in all of our sin. His love is not based on the way that things were, and it's not based on how good things could be. So if you're listening to this sermon right now in this room or at home, in all of your faults and all of your flaws, listening to me with all of my faults and all of my flaws, and there are many, to all of us that have ever felt unworthy or unlovable, John 3.16 is telling you, it's not alluding to, it is flat out telling you that you are loved right now. And it's not just telling you that. God proves it with an action. He gave his one and only son, Jesus, out of love. Jesus Christ, who is God wrapped in flesh, was given for us. Everyone who believes in him will not perish God proved his love to us by giving his son to die in our place and save us from perishing. Now, personally, for me, this is a, this is a difficult reality to face. Uh, it's not a secret to people who actually know me, but I didn't really have the best father. Uh, we didn't have the best relationship. Uh, and I would argue that the core assumption of most people is that they, even if they had a good father, they are somewhat fatherless in that they're on their own to try to figure out how to make life work. So to hear that you have a good father 
that is better than you thought a father could be. That he cares, that he's generous, that he's kind. That he's an engaged father wise enough to guide you. And generous enough to provide a way for you. Even after you ran and you rejected him, that your father chased you down. That is very difficult to grasp. And that's from a son's perspective. It was also difficult from a father's perspective. You all know that I have my daughter, Macy, but um, I, my wife and I also just had a son, Cohen, who, that's, a, oh, that's adorable. He's also in here asleep, so try to <laughs> keep it down. You don't understand, he doesn't sleep. Mm. Oh, gosh, sorry. Uh, he just turned one month old. This week, um, or a couple days ago, or yesterday, I don't know, the time's all blurring together. Um, And as a father, I can't understand the sacrifice that God made on my behalf. I can't even fathom it, because I can't fathom ever doing something like that, or anything mildly close to that. It's mind-blowing. And maybe for you, it's somewhat difficult to, to listen to that verse, to read that verse, no matter what your relationship with your father was like, to hear about a father that came to earth to chase you down and sent Jesus to die in your place to save you from perishing. He loved us so much that he sent his one and only son. Some translations say only begotten son. I like that more. Only begotten. That means unique. That means one of a kind. A perfect God wiping out the sin of all of humanity requires a perfect sacrifice. And there's only one perfect person that met the requirements that was qualified enough to be that one-of-a-kind sacrifice, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to rescue all of us who, just like Nicodemus, when he came to visit Jesus in the dark of night, are just writhing in our unbelief. Jesus became flesh so that he could save those who just simply look to him. So that brings us to the last question that I have. Am I born again? Are you? The birth that your parents gave you is not enough. The faith that your parents have that will not cut it for you. It's a personal choice that you have to make for yourself. Being religious isn't enough. Nicodemus was religious. All of the Pharisees were religious. Have you ever fully surrendered to Christ as Lord? Do you fully rely on Jesus as your Savior? Have you been born again? Just as we experienced life when we were first born and we grew and we matured, in the same way when we're born again, we don't stay babies. As we grow in our faith, We grow in our obedience. We grow in our faith and we grow in our love. When we're born again, we experience a brand new life. So I'll end by saying this. Our friend Nicodemus, Nick, sorry. Our friend Nick that we talked about earlier, you guys are pretty familiar with the name. You know what he did when he approached Jesus in the dark. Um, But beyond that, a lot of people aren't really familiar 
with anything that Nicodemus did. He actually shows up two more times in scripture. First, flash forward a bit. Nicodemus shows up as part of the Jewish council as the group was discussing ways to eliminate Jesus. In those discussions, Nicodemus was the one who raised the question of justice. Nicodemus was the one that objected to the decision that was made about Jesus. We all know the outcome. Clearly, that objection was overruled. But the point is, Nicodemus, who came to see Jesus in the dark of night, who was so ashamed to be seen speaking to Jesus, was now speaking up in front of everyone in his defense. He had one conversation with Jesus, and his heart was already changing from it. Fast forward a little bit more. The last time that we see Nick, it was after Jesus had been crucified. And Nicodemus is asking for Jesus' body to prepare it for burial. Being part of the Jewish council at the time, this was a huge, huge risk. Nicodemus went from hiding his belief from everyone to speaking up for what was right to making very, very bold moves despite the consequences. And then that's where we leave him with the confidence that his heart continued to change after his encounter with Jesus. If we have encountered a new life in Jesus, our hearts will continue to change as well. And this is a point that people often miss. When you're born again, when you begin living that born identity, you will not instantly be perfect. You won't be perfect at all. Thankfully, our God does not require perfection. He doesn't seek instant perfection from us. He seeks steady change and steady growth. We don't need more rules, more religion. We need the breath and the spirit of God to make us alive, to give us new hearts. Whether if you've been following Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, let's all allow him to give us new hearts today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, this message that jumped all over scripture. I thank you for the story of Nicodemus. I thank you for the sacrifice that your son made for all of us. Um, Lord, I pray that we not take that for granted, that we not just live our lives normally because there's so much going on in our lives that we understand and we know and we love you and what you've done for us, that we remember what, what brought us all here to begin with, God. We are so thankful so, so thankful for everything that Jesus has done for us and how he loves us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.